Hello, Mainly fans. Those of you lucky enough to be listening to us in the Pine Tree State should check out our first ever in-person live show at the Maine Historical Society of Portland at 10 a.m. on Saturday, August the 12th. This show covers the surprising story surrounding the execution of an indentured servant, a Nauset woman from Cape Cod named Patience Boston, for killing a child in 1735. Only the third person executed in the history of colonial Maine, Patience Boston's conversion experience in jail awaiting her hanging helped spark a religious revival known as the Great Awakening. It's a story that deals with the lives of indentured servants and the very poor in colonial Maine, as well as indigenous history, crime, punishment, redemption, and religion. Friends don't let friends miss opportunities like this. Those of you listening from away, which now includes Iran and Japan, will be able to enjoy the show later on when it's released in the usual format. Today's episode is about the doomed American attempt to capture, or rather, liberate Quebec from the British during the early stages of the Revolutionary War. The expedition journeyed through Maine, and due to timing, geography, and honestly, subpar planning, much of it degenerated into a harrowing struggle to simply survive in the North Woods. As we'll see, far from simply being about Americans versus the British, campaign for Quebec turned into a tale of man versus nature. Oh yeah, and it was led by a guy named Benedict Arnold before he got famous for the other thing. There's so much here that this epic story will take two episodes to tell. Fans of Gary Paulson's novels of wilderness survival will be thrilled. People with very strong opinions about the nutritional benefits of eating moose will be shocked. What I want to know is... If Benedict Arnold betrayed his country in the forest and nobody was around to see it, would it still be treason? Let's do this. My guest today is Tiffany Link, Collections Curator at the Maine Historical Society, one of our beloved former guests back again to talk more American Revolution with us. Tiffany, welcome to Mainly History. Thank you. Happy to be here. It's great to have you. Let's let's get into it. Today we're talking about Benedict Arnold, and specifically we're talking about Benedict Arnold, the stuff that he's no longer really remembered for anymore by most people. He's sort of the, you know, sort of like Patton in uh, in the World Wars, where everybody remembers his his later work and they forget the early stuff. <laughs> let's let's start with the beginning, um, just in case people vaguely have heard of Benedict Arnold and traitor is often associated with his name. Uh, specifically, what is he best known for? Even if he didn't uh, wish he was. Uh, well, yeah, the, the treachery of, yeah. Um, you know, turning West Point over to the British. It, it's a little unclear if you really planned it out ahead of time or if there was sort of a set of 
what would have been very unhappy circumstances where Washington was actually going to be visiting West Point at the time um, that he was planning on handing it over to the British. So, you know, he was aware of this and was perfectly willing to hand Washington over as well. And fortunately, all of that was discovered virtually at the last minute and thwarted. And, um, you know, he went on to serve the British and served them pretty well with distinction, you know, burned his hometown in Connecticut, um, was had a horrible reputation among the American side of things for the rest of the war. And then went on to serve in the Caribbean. And uh, again, just uh, seemed like a angry gentleman <laughs> for, for most of his life. And, um, you know, died in England, supposedly asked to be buried in his continental uniform. Perhaps there was some regret at the end of his life, but, you know, in my opinion, certainly didn't seem to show it uh, mm. most of the time. So fair. Yeah. For I think for most ordinary people, because they, they don't know anything about him besides the treachery, sometimes that almost uh, obscures the fact that he really was kind of like an MVP on the American side of the war, next to Washington, of course, for for much of the conflict, right? Like he, well, kind he, he no. I I'm not. That, I'm okay. not an Arnold fan. And, sure, sorry, um, I didn't. It, I didn't mean to. No, <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't no, mean to I imply, just. Yeah, yeah, I'm probably a little harder on Arnold than some people, okay. and um, I I know there's been some work, you know, maybe in the last. 20 or 50 years to, I don't want to say like Arnold apologists, but okay. kind of um, say, you know, he wasn't all bad. And I don't think he was all bad. But um, when you look at him, and you look at the other people serving at the same time, who were enduring similar circumstances and similar setbacks in their career and their fortunes and the way those people chose to handle those situations and the way he chose to handle those situations. Um, he just wasn't necessarily a very great person. You know, I, I think he was a uh, pretty mm. egotistical. I think oh, he I didn't mean was pretty selfish. I think he was pretty uh okay. pretty concerned about how things were going for Benedict. Um, gotcha. And I do think in the beginning he was kind of wrapped up in this patriotic fervor. Um, but you know, the minute things kind of didn't go the way he wanted them to go, he would quit. I mean, you know, after he took Fort Ticonderoga and um Crown Point and kind of expected to be given control of that area possibly the assignment to attack Montreal, you know, that was handed over to General Schuyler. And so he just up and leaves. He says, great, I'm done. I'm going to go to Waterville, going to hand in my bills, try to collect my payment for, you know, my personal money that I've put up at this point. And, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't get, didn't get the commission I wanted. So see you later. Um, right. And it, it's really that point where he kind of ends up in Cambridge you know, even to volunteer for this Quebec expedition, which was kind of like a a consolation prize, if you will. And would he have even volunteered for the Quebec expedition if the Montreal expedition hadn't been sort of taken from him and given to someone else? You know, like, right. I, I don't know. I guess what I meant. <laughs> but I, yes, he no, did other good things. Yeah, you know, no, like, oh, I'm not trying um, to, sorry. <laughs> I, I didn't mean, I wasn't getting into the sort of more, uh, psychological aspect yeah, of the psychological I was thinking when I said like MVP and stuff I'm I'm thinking if we're going to be like 
there can be people who we dislike who are good at the technical aspects of their job. Like, True. so I was thinking about that with Arnold in the sense of also in terms of why people would be particularly shocked at his betrayal or or scandalized. True. Yeah. That yeah. if he had been a, a true failure who tried to then betray the American cause, people might have been a little more sort of like, well, what do you expect? He was a loser and he had no other nowhere else to turn. But if it's a successful military leader perceived as such, whatever they thought of his personality, that might heighten the sort of the, the, the stench of betrayal and the, and the sense of, of loss is, is what I was getting at. Yeah. And I, I think historically that is very, very true. I mean, you know, he um, was tragically wounded in the siege of Quebec when they finally made it through Maine. Um, he was the hero of Saratoga, again, wounded there as well. Mm. Um, you know, he had even put up some money, I think like about $500 to help care for the orphaned children of Joseph Warren after he was killed at the Battle of Bunker Hill. You know, so he had this kind of reputation for being kind of full steam ahead. He would make these really brash decisions. He was a, a considered a very brilliant battlefield tactician. But after Saratoga, somewhat due to his wound, you know, he ends up sort of being stationed in the Philadelphia area. He's kind of put in charge of some more back-end sort of clerical duties. He has some access to kind of managing funds and provisions. There's some question about how he handled some of those things. You know, he was, <laughs> he actually was brought up on court martial, you know, prior to his decision to go treasonous. Um, mm. There's evidence that he was, you know, sending bits of information to the British here and there for a couple of years before he actually, you know, made the decisions he made at West Point. So, you know, I think some people were a little suspicious of his character all along. You know, were there these thoughts that he would actually commit treason? I don't think so. And um, I don't think that, you know, even if he had maybe turned sides or maybe just sort of fallen away from the cause a little bit, that wouldn't have been as shocking as delivering West Point to the British, you know, like um, with the potential of Washington, like on the side. So yeah, I didn't um, know you about know, that. That's way worse. Yeah. Oh, know? yeah. Way I worse. I mean, most people, I mean, quite honestly... Most people, Dave, would be like, I mean, I know West Point is the military academy now, but it wasn't then. It was just a fort. And it was a very strategically placed fort, though. Sure. Like it, its positioning was, yes. was very important um, yeah. at this time. But yeah, it that doesn't sound... I mean, it's yeah. bad, but adding the, the Washington, that's just an added layer of betrayal. Because if there mm -hmm. was somebody who kind of had Arnold's back the whole time, it was Washington, you know, he did agree with the court martial. He did think he needed to be reprimanded, but he was kind of like a father figure being like, look, like you just need to kind of correct your behavior and get back on track because if you can, you're so valuable and, and we want you to. And so he was kind of just trying to foster Arnold to be the person he felt that he could be, you know, be the hero at Saratoga, be the guy who led the army through Maine, just acknowledge the fact that these are accomplishments and that, you know, you don't need all of this extra stuff because he was very interested in stuff, you know, like very materialistic, um, kind of like the, I need to drive the BMW to, so people know how important I am, you know, kind mm. of guy. And, and that, 
that really kind of led him astray. And um, that must have felt like a sting or unfair coming from Washington, who was a very wealthy man who owned several hundred people enslaved at his very well-appointed plantation estate uh, at Alexandria. Sorry, Alexandria. Thank you. But, yeah, and so I'm I sure think Arnold saw from, it that way. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I think he did. And, and Arnold himself had been a very wealthy man. He was a pretty successful merchant in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, he had he put up a lot of his personal fortune in the war. And a, a lot of wealthy people did. You know, Washington did himself. I think the thing that Arnold didn't know and a lot of people didn't know was that Washington was often cash poor. You know, he mm. um, was running this plantation but didn't necessarily have a lot of liquid assets all the time. I mean, I think he had to borrow after he was elected president and like he had to borrow like $1,000 just so that he could make it to Philadelphia because he didn't have the cash on hand. So, you know, I think if you look at the struggles that they're both going through, they're actually a lot more similar than you would think. Um, Mm. You know, Washington's constantly being doubted his, his prowess, his military ability, he's not winning a lot of battles. There's this kind of cadre of men who are sort of plotting behind his back, you know, in the late 1770s to sort of displace him as leader. There's a, there's a lot going on that he's dealing with. That's very similar to this. Like I'm not being as appreciated as I should be, feelings that Arnold is going through and and they both handle it in some very different ways. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think that that's what Arnold thought. I think he thought like, I trusted this person. Like, why can't he see that I I'm good enough or um, he shouldn't have like gone against, but Arnold was clearly in the wrong. Like he had clearly right. committed some errors, you know, and, and he just couldn't accept the, he just couldn't accept that he had made some poor decisions that he was now having to answer for. And um, instead of kind of correcting his course, he lashed out in a different way. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but you know, again, we're six years, five years before that and things are still going relatively well for him. Like, so, (laughs) right. So today's theme is the, before Arnold became a household name Mm -hmm. for treason. And a lot of that story runs right through Maine, which is of course our, our point of contact with, uh, with Arnold's story. So uh, if we could rewind a smidge, uh, and mm-hmm. actually we'll start with Benedict Arnold's background. So wh- how is it that Benedict Arnold becomes uh, in a position to be the leader of this, the most aggressive, uh, substantial American offensive outside of what became the United States, the American attempt to, as they would have understood it, to liberate a large <laughs> part of Canada from, uh, from British oppression in 1775 and 76 how does how is it that arnold gets picked for the job who is this guy so um arnold himself was a merchant from connecticut uh he was fairly wealthy he did fairly well he actually did a lot of trade with the french um citizens in quebec um now under british rule of course so he was somewhat familiar with the city he had been there so he uh you know knew the people a bit knew how to get around Uh, knew the approaches to the city itself, um, which would come in handy for the expedition to Quebec. But when the war broke out, he kind of saw this as a great opportunity to distinguish himself in history. Uh, You know, like a lot of the other leaders in the war, he didn't necessarily have a lot of military experience, but he was a man of some standing in his community. And so uh, he joined. 
he initially had the rank of colonel and was sort of with the army, with the militia. And then when they heard that there was a, a cache of, of army military supplies at uh, Fort Ticonderoga in upstate New York that was relatively poorly guarded, he sort of set out with a group of men to um, take those stores and, and take the fort itself. Also headed in that direction were Ethan Allen and his Green Mountain Boys. They were coming from Vermont, so they were a lot closer. Mm. Um, and uh, they they end up sort of getting there about the same time. Um, they do take the fort. Uh, Arnold kind of ends up taking some credit for that because, as he saw it, the Green Mountain Boys were rowdy and drunk and not really able to handle the situation once the initial... Um, surrender of the fort was in hand. So he he does kind of take control of that area. He takes Ticonderoga. He takes Crown Point. Um, he kind of becomes familiar with that area of upstate New York and the Great Lakes. He encounters some of the indigenous groups that are in that area and gets to know them a little bit as well. And, and they, you know, somewhat feed into the indigenous groups in Canada. And he's hoping, you know, at some point to potentially uh, launch an invasion of Montreal from this location, because there's a pretty established and easy route up through the Great Lakes uh, to Montreal. And um, there were rumors that although up until this point, they had really said continually the Continental Congress, as well as Washington, that they did not want to invade Canada. This was a defensive war against a horrible tyrant. And if they invaded Canada, it would look offensive and and just kind of be bad. Mm. So, you know, but, you know, as the summer wore on, things were just looking more and more attractive about Canada. They were thinking that if they could take a, a large city in Canada, particularly Quebec being the capital at the time, that um, it would be a great bargaining chip for them to kind of uh, get more of what they wanted out of the, the conflict, because again, we're summer of 1775. We're still not to the Declaration of Independence. We're not even um, to like the Olive Branch petition. We're still thinking that we can resolve this in some way and land back under British rule, but have some of the, the liberties that had been slowly taken away, like the ability to levy taxes on themselves, particularly colonies like Massachusetts and Virginia that had their own like nearly democratic governing bodies. And, you know, they were like, we can we can use this as a bargaining chip to kind of get back to where we were, because, again, at, at this point, independence wasn't really the goal. Right. And was um, there wasn't there also, like so many other cases, this hope that, well, we'll be greeted as liberators. And a lot of the people there are sympathetic to the cause of uh, of, of our liberties. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that that was another reason is that they were starting to get all of these reports that the French in, in Canada were unhappy under British rule. The thing that I kind of found curious, humorous, if you will, is they keep getting reports that say there's no evidence that the French will rise to defend the cities. There's no evidence that the French will fight against the colonial forces. There's no evidence that they'll help the British. But they never say, we have actual evidence that they are going to fight with you, that they're going to help you. <laughs> they they just mm. keep getting evidence that they won't be hindered in any way. So uh. I, I think that sometimes, you know, uh, when they write about it, they're clear, but in their brains, I feel like maybe they were like, well, once we get there, you know, and once they see that we can do it, 
you know, then they'll help us. Um, because it was true that the French were not super thrilled with their current situation. I mean, the French and Indian War was not long over. The French were basically 100% Catholic, which is not the situation of their rulers. And, um, you know, their Catholic way of life had been more than just religion, but also somewhat the way they were used to being governed. So there was just a, a lot of conflict. And again, that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be allies, but there were just many, many reports that they weren't going to meet a lot of resistance and many, many reports that Quebec in particular was not very well defended uh, by British soldiers. So well, and you would be, you would be more aware of this, and but a lot of our listeners might not be. There's been more scholarship on this point, but that the British Empire really was, after their victory uh, against the French in 1763, policymakers in London made some decisions about, okay, we have all of these non-Protestant subjects now, like the French in Canada, the Spanish in Florida, various Indians in India, right? Hindus mm -hmm. and Muslims. And so there was this move towards some greater religious toleration for these non-Protestant groups, but who would also be governed much more from the imperial center. Right. And for people in, say, New England, where they're mostly English-descended Protestants, that was a really uncomfortable prospect. And it's a, a less flattering aspect of the uh, grievances of the American colonists and what became the United States. But, you know, one of them was that, well, we don't we really don't want to be seen as the equals of these non-Protestant foreigners. Right. Because we're real English people. We're real British subjects. And if the French in Montreal are the exact same as the as the British subjects in, you know, Philadelphia or Boston. What does that mean? Right. Yeah. No, that's yeah. not good. We don't want to be the same as these people. We're not. We're the same as you people in York and, and Devon and all the rest. And part of the the so-called intolerable acts right in response to the Boston Tea Party was that the parliament said, OK, uh, we're going to make the Great Lakes administered as part of Canada. And so that means if you want to move there, New Englanders, you're going to live next to a bunch of Catholics. And they're going yes. to have freedom of religion. Yeah. So which yeah. complicates all of this and likely also didn't do the Americans any favor if they went marching north to Canada, since the French were had to be aware that like part of these their Protestant neighbors had been invading them for all these generations. And, yeah. You know. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, there were reports, like I said, that they were pretty unhappy under British rule not willing to necessarily fight against the colonists, but the colonists themselves who were on this expedition didn't really know what they were going to encounter, you know, it, um, and didn't really know how they were going to react or interact with the French that they encountered along the way, the, these French settlements that were, I think in some ways, like still more French than a lot of the colonists were British, if that mm. makes sense. You know, I, I think yeah. at this point, a lot of colonists, even if they're not saying it yet, kind of think of themselves as American, or at least as being from Massachusetts, or, you know, kind of having their own little culture pockets. Um, but I think the French in this area, especially the settlements, the more rural settlements they encounter before they get to Quebec, are still like very French. And, and a lot of that, I think, is their deeply rooted 
Catholicism that's keeping their community insular and keeping traditions alive. And um, of course, they're still speaking French. And and then they at this point, you know, they have this oppressor too, which I think kind of makes people cling harder to like their their heritage and their culture when it's it's being threatened. So sure. um so yeah, there was a lot of maybe apprehension is a bit of a strong word, but I think some of the more general men on the expedition were a little doubtful what their reception might be uh once mm. they arrived. So um so yeah, certainly. Okay. But but these reports were all very, you know, promising and they kind of decided to go for it and and their initial plan was to have uh, the attack through Montreal use the rivers to get to Quebec and and then take that city as well. And they chose General Schuyler of Hamilton fame to uh, yes. uh, <laughs> to lead mm-hmm. this attack starting in Albany um, and then going north. Arnold, kind of being in that area already, thought that he might be a pretty good choice to do this and was a little offended at not being picked and decided, all right, well, if I'm not going to lead this expedition, then I am going to just go down to Waterville, Massachusetts, kind of hand in my receipts, um, ask for some reimbursement for not my time, but the supplies and and things like that, that I've purchased over my service and, um, you know, maybe be done with this or, or move on to some other part of the army. And so he does that. And while all of this is going on, the people in Cambridge are kind of talking about the best way to attack Montreal and make it as successful as possible. And a lot of the men in the army at this point are, we're still talking kind of like July, August time period here. And of so 1775. Of 1775. So okay. there are other divisions of the Continental Army arriving, you know, from other colonies, but the, the biggest portion of the men at this point is still from New England. And so there's a lot of common knowledge among them that there is supposedly a, a trail that goes from Quebec down through the Kennebec River and to the Atlantic through Maine. And they don't really know where this trail is. It's kind of a combination of like speculation and rumor and legend. There's very few indigenous people who have ever made the trek and only one known white person who has done it. And his name was uh, Montresor. And he is actually uh, a British army engineer who is in Boston at this time being besieged by General Washington. So, you know, he isn't going to be of any help. Mm -hmm. So Washington kind of starts sussing out these rumors and trying to gather how feasible this really is. And in, in May of 1775, there was a man named Jonathan Brewer from Massachusetts, and he had actually suggested using this route to attack Quebec. But um, he wasn't the most popular guy. I don't think he had the best scruples, and he was very badly wounded at Bunker Hill. And so the plan was just kind of put on hold. But as attacking Canada was looking more attractive throughout the summer, Washington was really kind of trying to start investigating it again sort of in early August, which was really pretty late to be planning an expedition through Maine. Um, but... Yeah, that was my thought. <laughs> you know, a very, yeah. you know, I have fairly pedestrian knowledge of this expedition, but it just struck me as asking people to march from Maine to Quebec in winter seems kind of stupid, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's not as bad as invading Russia in winter, but it's not 
It's not a great idea either. Not awesome. Yeah. So. Uh, <laughs> so I think some of Washington's thought was we if we can get there, if we can take Quebec, we can end this. There was still this very prevalent thought that the war would be over soon and that this would be a way to really get the war over quickly. And he also thought they had a pretty narrow window to get there and do this before rumors and spies and just speculation got back to the British that they were planning to do this at all. Because right now, Quebec was reportedly very poorly armed. Montreal, similarly, like not very well defended. The part that was defended was Nova Scotia. That's where the ships were. That's where the reinforcements were. And they were worried that if they waited until the next year, um, the next spring, that the ships from Halifax and Nova Scotia would be able to get um, through the rivers with reinforcements to Quebec and Montreal, and they would have no chance. And even worse, if this route really did exist, then the British might be able to follow it down and attack Maine and New England from from that direction or potentially establish like another supply route or something of that nature. So they they really felt like if they were going to do it, they needed to try to do it as quickly as possible um, or there just wouldn't be an opportunity later. Um, so he starts kind of rushing this plan together. The the plan for Schuyler to attack Montreal is kind of like on its way. And so Arnold thinks if he can get this plan for Quebec in order, kind of like one of two things will happen. Either Quebec will be a distraction and it will be easier for them to defeat Montreal or Schuyler will get to Montreal quicker and whatever troops are in Quebec will rush to Montreal's defense, leaving Quebec even more defenseless than they had been before. So he figures he might get one, but he also might get both if he does this sort of two-pronged attack that will meet in the middle. So he's gathering reports about this route. The first time anyone ever really talks about it is a, a 1682 French map that kind of shows like a very rough way that you can get from point A to point B. Starting in the 1690s and the early 1700s, there's a couple of instances of French officers in Canada considering using the route to get down and attack Boston or New England. They don't end up doing this. It's suggested several times from both sides throughout the French and Indian War that maybe they could use this route to their advantage, but again, no one really tries. Indigenous people, traders, missionaries, they had been along at least portions of the route and had kind of added details. Sometimes there were sketches, but there wasn't really like a good point A to point B, here's how you travel down this route. So Certainly um, not for that many people. No, definitely not. And, and the sense we should say, you know, for like the Wabanaki, they were making these travels, especially from near what's Augusta, Maine now, mm -hmm. or, you know, the Kennebec village of Norwich Walk, you know, was a yeah. hub for people traveling from the the French cities in Canada to, well, Norwich Walk, right? And so they would have been aware of, mostly canoe routes for as much as they could but for yes for like thousands of people to make this kind of a journey and especially overland that would have been a different matter yeah and i think you know 20 people at a time is kind of the most that had maybe try had been trying to traverse this route together um mm. and that was under uh, general montresor 
who was asked to do a survey of the route, you know, find out if it actually existed, draw a map, um, make details. And, and he did that about 1761, um, mm. maybe 1759. It's a little iffy, but right around 1760, he sets out with some indigenous guides, um, about 20 people in total. And they go from Quebec down the Chaudière River, across the mountains, meet up with the Kennebec eventually, and they do make it to the coast. He keeps a journal of all of this. It's sent to England for safekeeping, but there are manuscript copies made, but they have a lot of redacted information. Like they might not tell you how many miles it is between two places, or they might not include place names or names of bodies of water for national security purposes. It's not a complete description of the route, but Washington has a copy of this journal in Cambridge. And between that and what he's hearing from these New England officers, he thinks it's pretty feasible. And then this guy named Colburn, who's living in the kind of like Gardner Augusta area, he shows up in Cambridge. And not only does he show up, but he brings with him a an indigenous person named Chief uh, Swashan and a couple of his warriors. And They've come from Maine to say, like, this route is possible, and here's how we can do it. And Colburn had actually encountered Chief Swishon and his Indians at Swan Island uh, on the lower Kennebec. They had actually come from this route uh, across the mountains and down the river because they had heard that the colonials might be considering an attack through Maine. And so they thought, well, we're unhappy under British rule. They were living in the St. Francis mission area outside of Quebec. And they were kind of commonly referred to as the St. Francis Indians. So uh, it was Massachusetts did not, uh, the Royal government of Massachusetts did not establish regular treaty relations with the Wabanaki after the seven years war which no. was a major reason why the most Wabanaki sided with the Americans. Yeah. You know, starting in 1775. So, yeah. 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 So they, a couple of them leave, they head down this route. They're on their way to Cambridge uh, when Colburn catches up with them before they leave Maine. And he says, let's go together. Washington is pretty pleased because he sees them as proof that the route is passable and potentially practical. Colburn says, not only do I kind of know this area, but I have a sawmill and I'm a boat builder. I can make you bateaus, um, which are kind of broad, flat bottom boats that could pass over some of the more shallow waters of the Kennebec more easily. They could also carry a lot of men and a lot of equipment. Colburn thought that having the army go through Maine would just be a great boon to this very rural economy um, and particularly a great boon to himself who would be building these <laughs> boats. <laughs> So he actually makes several trips. It takes about a day by water, uh, by the coastline to get from Georgetown, Maine, where the Kennebec exits, um, down to Cambridge. So he made this trip several times, kind of working out all of these plans, lobbying for this commission, um, getting around the British blockades uh, around Boston and kind of learning how to navigate those waters well and, you know, trying to convince Washington of this plan. And so... Washington's thinking that this is more and more, again, kind of practical and possible. And so he starts interviewing people to lead the group and Arnold comes out on top. Um, again, he has this relationship with Quebec from his merchant days. 
um, not only with uh, the people there, but also with the city itself. He's had dealings with indigenous groups in that area, as well as sort of like upstate New York and Western, like the Western part of the Quebec territory in Canada at that time. And um, he's known for being a pretty brilliant tactician who can make kind of in the moment decisions that tend to go pretty well. And so Washington picks him. There's some reservations about his character. Uh, his command in upstate New York was a little controversial. I think he was a pretty hard taskmaster. Some people describe him as being a little manic. And I think when he was in that mood, if other people weren't you know, working as hard or putting forth as much effort, he could he could be a bit of a a taskmaster trying to get people mm. to do what he thought they should be doing um, to the extent he thought they should be doing it. And mostly, though, there was a concern about his ego because he, you know, very clearly felt that he should be in charge, thought a lot of his abilities. And Washington was a little concerned that when he met up with General Schuyler's men, that he would not relinquish command to Schuyler, who outranked him at this point. So, you know, he puts these reservations aside and goes ahead and puts Arnold in charge of the expedition, says that there's a couple of parameters he needs to follow. But other than that, he can kind of choose the men at his will. And so Washington says they all need to be volunteers. They need to be men who have good physical health uh, to handle this very arduous task in front of them. There need to be two infantry battalions and three rifle companies. And how many and, soldiers, give or take, is that? So by the time they leave, they have about 1,150 men with okay. them. Um, it's a pretty sizable force, just like a little over 1,000. And so Arnold puts forth the call for volunteers. He starts off with officers who served with distinction at Bunker Hill. The officers, in turn, start getting volunteers from their different companies. People are so ready to do something at this point because it's approaching mid-August, like maybe the first end of the first or into the second week of August. And they haven't done anything since June 17th. Like that was the Battle of Bunker Hill. And there have really been no other battles or engagements to speak of. Um, they're bored. They're worried the war is going to be over soon. And a lot of them are going to miss out on an opportunity to actually fight the British. Uh, so within a day or so, they have all the volunteers that they need. Aaron Burr is actually in Cambridge at this point, also of Hamilton fame, and he decides he wants to volunteer for the expedition, but he's a little bit too late. And by the time he does, all the positions are filled, especially the officer positions, which is what a man of his uh, family standing and bit of wealth uh, would have been expecting to receive. So Arnold tells him, you you can't serve as an officer, but you can uh, be what we call a gentleman volunteer. And that was pretty common among men of Burr's sort of social and economic standing. Um, it was a good way for them to further their military career. And basically what ended up happening is they would be an aide for a lesser officer because only generals got official like personal aides. So they were basically a unpaid intern <laughs> um ah, okay. hoping to, to hoping to further themselves along in the future so aaron bird joins the expedition in this manner yeah uh, so colburn himself uh colburn did receive the commission to build the betos and so he starts work on that he has two weeks to finish them they need 200 boats it's a lot of boats to build in two weeks yeah um <laughs> they don't have time to properly prepare the wood 
And so they're using what they call green wood, which is just, it's not seasoned. Um, it's not like hard wood basically. And so it will absorb a lot more water. It'll be a lot heavier. It won't be as water resistant, uh, or waterproof. And they also didn't have enough nails, which at that time took a long time to make. So they were using fewer nails per boat, uh, knowing that they would have to do some repairs along the way. And, Colburn was actually asked by Washington to not only make the boats, but also to get together about 20 men who would go on the expedition for the sole purpose of like repairing and maintaining the boats Mm. along the way. So while Arnold's preparing the men in Cambridge, Colburn is busying himself with the boats and the army finally in the Gardner, Maine, Augusta, Maine area. And Arnold finally leaves Cambridge on September 11th, which again, (laughs) pretty late. Um, (laughs) and, uh, they first head to Newburyport, Massachusetts, uh, so that they can go by ocean faring vessels, uh, up the coast of Maine. They can't leave right from Cambridge because there's too many British warships, uh, that are blockading the direct Boston area. So they leave from further North, so they won't be detected. There's some rumor at this point going around that they're planning on launching some kind of an invasion of Canada, but the assumption among the British from the intelligence that they're able to gather is that they're headed for Nova Scotia. So at this point, they're like, that's great. They can think we're going to Nova Scotia. Maybe they'll even divert more people there. They certainly won't be sending them to Quebec. Um, So they feel like that is at least working to their advantage. Hmm. So they leave Georgetown by September 19th. I mean, we're just getting... (laughs) later and later here (laughs) and uh or sorry they get to georgetown by september 19th just that's the where the kennebec river empties into the atlantic and they get an extra 20 recruits at georgetown who are just happy to join the expedition support the cause and they continue on their ocean going vessels up the kennebec river because they can pretty much make it on those all the way to fort western which is essentially um augusta and that's where they'll transfer yeah. over to the Bateaus. And it's still there today. Go and it is still it, there today. You can go yeah. see it. Yeah. It's very well preserved. It's well kept. Yeah. Great little site and totally worth the trip. And they kind of use that as their jumping off point. And so from there, Arnold kind of sets up camp. The soldiers start sort of inhabiting grounds and empty spaces and houses. Around. I mean, it's a lot of people. And I don't know what the population of the area was at that time, but I'm going to hazard a guess it might not have been a thousand. (laughs) So, you know, you're probably doubling, tripling the size of of that, that direct area around Fort Western. So you've got to figure in 1775, this force that was mobilized was one of the largest cities in Maine at the time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The, I believe Falmouth future Portland was like maybe 2000 people if that in 1775 on the cusp of being burned down. Yeah. Which... I think we were talking like maybe 16 to 1800 in the last, um, the burning of Falmouth podcast yeah. somewhere in that range. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. So and yeah. Uh, which... No offense to current day Augusta, but 1775 Augusta was not 1775 Falmouth. So <laughs> yes, that's um, right. Yeah. I mean, let's face it. 2023 Augusta is not 2023. <laughs> Portland either. <laughs> no comment. But <laughs> uh yeah. So, you know, they're they're there. They're um 
things are going relatively smoothly. There's some general like soldier rowdiness. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, Arnold starts setting about making plans for the army to move forward. And he sends an advanced scouting party. And it's led by a man named Steele, who was from the, one of the Pennsylvania Rifleman regiments. And Archibald Steele is his name. And he gets a small group of men together. They're going to go scout out the the entire route up to the mountains, kind of mark the path so that it's easier to follow. And the army will start following a couple of days behind them. Along the way, they're supposed to look for spies. They're supposed to look for any indigenous or white settlers who might be friendly or foe, and then just any kind of unexpected or major obstacles along the path. They're also supposed to, they have orders to shoot on sight an Indian named Natanis, who has a cabin along the route. And this group takes with them uh, two men, uh, John Getchell and Jeremiah Horn. They're both from Vassalboro. And in the week's While Washington was planning in Cambridge, Colburn had had them go out and do a little bit of surveying, kind of like at least to the upper reaches of the Kennebec. And while they were doing that, they actually stayed with Natanis at his cabin. He was very friendly to them. You know, they had no issues. But while they were there, he casually mentions that he's a spy for the British. Oh, I was going to wonder. Yeah, actually, not casually. They say he boasts about it. (laughs) (laughs) And so... They don't exactly say why they're there, but, you know, everyone knows that there's a conflict going on. Everyone knows the rumor about this route. And so they get a little nervous that he might betray them. And so they, of course, report all of this back before the expedition is leaving. And so Arnold gives them instructions to shoot Natanis on sight. And that's a, another reason for the extra caution, because they don't know if in like the the weeks between that Natanis had maybe gotten more unfriendly indigenous groups or British soldiers, or, you know, if he had done something to impede the path in some way. So now, how many of these people in the advance party knew what Natanis looked like, or would they be conducting really awkward interviews with indigenous <laughs> folks in cabins? They mean so, like, it's your name by chance, Natanis. Yeah, that's a really good question. I think for the most part, uh, due to Getchell and Horn, um, having gone before, they just knew that there weren't really, after you got past Norgewalk, there's just nothing. So mm-hmm. there's Natanis's cabin and that's it. <laughs> um, yeah. And and they, they were going with this advance party as well. Oh, okay. So uh, Getchell was with the scouting party. So, you know, the likelihood that it would be someone else, I think is small in general. And they knew who he was as well. In addition to that, these Pennsylvania riflemen had really been having a rough time on the frontier. A lot of them had had some pretty negative encounters with indigenous groups. You know, after the French and Indian War, the British really didn't do a lot to sort of protect their more Western settlements. Uh, yes. um, and so their their experience had had just not been great. They felt a little betrayed by their own government that they weren't being protected, you know, They had had violent conflicts. Um, And so their prejudices towards indigenous people in general was was pretty high. So Uh, so they would have um, shot first, ask questions later anyway. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And, And in hindsight, you know, probably not the best men to select for the job because a lot of the indigenous people that they would encounter would have probably been friendly at this point. Mm. Um, You know, so it really ran a risk choosing them to do this of 
causing bad relations where there weren't any if they encountered a, a larger indigenous settlement or something like that i think i mean we should not gone we well should, yeah and we should add i mean in maine things had been pretty bad for a long time but then in particular really beginning around 1750 there was a spate of just straight up murders of various uh wabanakis by maine colonists of varying stripes and then even continuing past when the the organized warfare ended. Sure, and so, yeah. And um, in the region they were going through, Norwich had seen some of the worst of it, you know. Yes. The brutal massacre. Yes. But on the other hand, the indigenous kind of saw that massacre as having happened under the British authority. So yes. they weren't necessarily angry with the colonists who were now fighting against the British, but the Pennsylvania riflemen might not know. So there was just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. there, there is a, Fortunately, spoiler alert, nothing happened. But by choosing these particular men, there was potential for like the scouting party to sort of ruin everything. <laughs> and compared to in the Revolutionary War, the Americans had a way worse track record than the British generally, where uh, most indigenous nations east of the Mississippi River, uh, although not the Wabanakis, did side with the British. And one of the reasons was the Americans kept murdering the peace chiefs of the various factions or the the pro-American faction leaders, often by accident, but because people like these Pennsylvania frontier folk didn't really care and would just yeah. kill most of the Indians they met. Not uh, a lot and, of diplomacy happening. Yes, <laughs> and most of the indigenous people who actually they were able to get near were the ones who were not at war with them. And so true, meant right. That, so there was this really like depressingly consistent habit of American frontiersmen murdering their potential allies during yeah. the revolutionary war yeah very unfortunate but yes in this instance in this uh, instance they did not they well there was no <laughs> there was no opportunity so yes, yes. You know, <laughs> fortunately so yeah the this little advanced group of riflemen set out under steel they make a pretty easy way of it you know past norwich walk um which is really kind of the sort of end of the lower region of the Kennebec, um, where they start to reach some of the lesser known and more arduous part of the journey. They were eating entirely just the rations that they brought with them because they'd given they'd been given very strict instructions not to fire their weapons, not to light too large of a fire. Um, they just didn't want to attract any attention to them. They were a pretty small group of people, less than 10, I think maybe up to 12, but they they couldn't defend themselves if they were set upon, you know, in the wilderness um, mm. by a larger group. So, and they didn't want to like tip their hand either. So they, they were trying to be very stealthy and not kind of ruin it for the larger army that would be following behind them in, in a few days. So, you know, in the beginning, of course, they're, they're eating decently well, but the rations never last as long as you think they're going to. Right. Um, they had pretty good fishing, though. When they reached beyond Norwich Walk, there's a little section near the Great Carrying Place, which is about 12 miles of area where they would have to carry their boats. This advance party had like had the advantage of being in birch bark canoes, which were much lighter. Um, they could navigate much more narrow water. So, you know, they didn't have it as rough as, as the rest of the army, but still a lot of physical toil on a very low calorie intake once they got beyond Norwich Walk. And so they reached the great carrying place. There's a little chain of three ponds. Um, the first pond has 
just this amazing fishing. I think like at one point they say they're catching a fish every 30 seconds. Um, yeah, just excellent. So they are able to replenish themselves with some fresh food. The water is really good there. And then they set off across this sort of marshy set of three ponds and it's really tough going. And it's also, you're gaining about 800 feet of elevation at the same time. So it's, it's not a pleasant part of the journey, but they finally, it, I think at one point it says it takes them like two or a full day to go two and a half miles, which is not great. You know, if you're no. thinking about how far you can usually hike, you know, in, in an hour or so. So they're pretty depleted at this point. They get to an area that they think is like nice level ground. They're very excited. It turns out to be this horrible bog that is just really wretched for them to get through. Their energy stores are super low, but thankfully John Getchell, who knows the area, has learned a lot from the indigenous groups, says, uh, look, you can cut these balsa fir trees and this like wonderful like sugary sap comes out. Um, so they do that. They get some sugar in their systems and that kind of helps supplement like their very meager, I think they're down to like half portions at this point and trying to only eat in the morning and in the evening so that they have to stop for lunch. Mm-hmm. And they're beginning to notice as we're, you know, nearing the end of September, that snow is appearing on the hillsides around them. It's not snowing on them yet, but it's a, a pretty ominous thing that they're they're looking at. So they finally reach the Dead River, which is at the end of these little three ponds. It's a very slow current river. So that's why it has that name. Um, so they go up the dead river again, pretty easily. Um, they reach a set of rapids and that's a harder passage. And they're kind of like just in a constant rotation of carrying boats and provisions for about three days. And it's at the end of this, that the guides tell them we're getting pretty close to the cabin of Natanis. We're about three miles away. So we should get the boats out of the water walk so that we are undetected and you know see what happens and so they get to the cabin there's no smoke coming out so they think that they're probably safe that no one's there it looks like no one's been there for about a week or so they guess um but it's very clear that someone's planning on returning so they decide to leave carry on their way and as they're going out they see a little stake in the ground that has a birch bark like flap attached to it and they look at it and on the flap is a map and it's a map of the dead river And you can either follow the Eastern branch or the Western branch. And by sight, it looks like the Western branch is probably the better choice, but the map is who who left them the map. I don't know. Ian. like we can't. That's very, wow. It's a little, I mean, we might find out later in the story. I don't want to spoil anything. Okay. Okay. So, so they don't know who left the map, you know, at this point they're thinking maybe some indigenous people, like maybe Natanis left it for other indigenous travelers. Maybe it's just a thing that the indigenous groups going through the area are doing for one another. Cause there's these little dots on the map. They think might be like indigenous settlements or camping spots. They don't really know, but they're all along the Eastern branch of the river. And so that kind of indicates to them that that's the more navigable side of the river, even though it looks like the Western branch would be the better way to go. And so even though they're a little uncertain about the map, who left it if it could be true could be leading them astray they decide to follow the map which is the best thing they could have done um and it does take them up the easier quote unquote um (laughs) branch of the river so 
They eventually reach what's referred to as the chain of ponds and some less navigable streams. This is kind of like the last obstacle before they get to the mountain range. The last in this chain of ponds is now called Arnold Pond in memory of the expedition, even to this day. Hmm. Um, And when they get to the Arnold Pond, they can truly see in front of them what all of these maps and journals and indigenous travelers have referred to as the height of land. And it's not just the height of land, it's part of the Appalachian Mountain range. And so they're like, oh, Uh... great. And so they're a little disheartened, but they're also a little cheered because once they get up and over this mountain range, they get to turn around and go back. They get to go back to the regular army. They get to go back to food, safety. Um, They don't have to go all the way to Quebec. They just have to get over the mountain range, um, report back on what they see and that it's possible because the theory is the other side of the mountain range is the easy part of the journey. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> so, and the more, and, and at least an established route, you know, like there, there's some knowledge of that route on that side. So they hike about a mile up. It's about 800 feet of elevation gain in one mile, which is, is pretty steep. Like if you're nearing a thousand feet of elevation gain as a hiker and in, in the whites and in Maine mountains, I can say, if you're doing about a thousand feet in a mile, you know, if, if you're healthy and in good shape and you're fit and the weather's nice, it's not that bad, but it's still like a, a pretty good workout. If you haven't been eating well and it's cold and you're getting rained on and you don't have the right equipment, it wouldn't be a great time. So they hike a mile up about three miles across the ridge, and then they hike a mile down to the other side just to make sure that it can be done. Getchell has like the smart idea to have someone climb a tree and just make sure that there's nothing within eyesight that is going to present an unexpected obstacle. So one of the younger guys in the group does that and he can see the river, he can see like a clear path, nothing to be concerned about, except there's a little bit of smoke in the distance, which they think might be you know, an indigenous group, and they decide that they had best probably be on their way. So they go back over the mountain range. They had stashed their boats, uh, their canoes at the bottom under some brush. So they collect those. Unfortunately, on the way down the mountain, there was just a horrible torrential downpour. It was also night by the time they were doing this. One of the men actually slipped and kind of lost the group, but managed to find his way back to them. So it was pretty harrowing getting down, but the the rain had made it so the last little chain of rapids that they had to cross over and some of the carrying places over this chain of ponds were so full that they could just go right down on their canoes. And oh, so God. that was, you know, really lucky for them because again, they're still pretty much out of food <laughs> at this point, running super low. Uh, they only had two rations left. And so they had eaten one for breakfast. But they were luckily able to go about 40 miles in one day due to the higher level of the river. They also were able to shoot a duck. They took a little bit of risk and did that. So that was a bit of sustenance. In another two days, they kept traveling down the river. Again, I think being able to carry their boats a little bit less and and make a, a bit better time. And they were really expecting at this point to be meeting the regular army any day now, but that they should have been coming along behind them and that they were going to meet up with them, meet up with safety, meet up with food (laughs) primarily. And, you know, that just wasn't happening. And then right about this time, the second canoe hit a, a, a tree branch and it punctured the canoe. So they had to pull it ashore. John Getchell helped them use some sap and some roots to repair it. 
they were on their way again in about just a couple hours, but almost instantaneously they punctured it again. So they had to repair it a second time. And then while they were trying to put it back into the water, a man slipped and the whole canoe just broke in half. And wow. uh, yeah, so they pulled it ashore again. And I mean, they were so lucky to have John Getchell with them, who was reportedly just exceptionally calm and very knowledgeable. And he sews the canoe back together with some cedar roots. And then he uses the pine sap to, you know, the pine pitch to seal it. And then he takes a bag that held at one time fat, but was totally empty at this point and kind of patches the the seam additionally with that. And once again, they're on their way and it's seaworthy and they're, they managed to shoot, uh, I think two moose. And so they eat moose, which doesn't really help them at this point. Moose is a pretty lean animal. Oh, I didn't and, know that. Um, yeah. And so by now they have, uh, which we know a lot about starvation, in 2023, but they didn't know as much back then. And so they had depleted their own fat stores at this point. They hadn't really had any sugar or carbohydrates in the recent uh, days. And so there wasn't anything in their body to like process the protein they were getting from the moose. So they were eating, but they were essentially still starving. If they had so rendered their, a lot of fat from they'd the moose, been bringing, had they yeah. just been like cornmeal or something? Yeah, it had been a lot of like um, biscuits and salted pork. Oh, so okay. I think when they went down to half rations, like in the morning and in the evening, they were eating like a half of a biscuit and I think like a half of a square inch of pork. So that's what they were having twice a day. Wow. Um, so pretty minimal. And again, um, after they got past the carrying place, there wasn't really like good fishing. There weren't a lot of animals and they were told not to use their guns anyway. So it, it was not great in terms of supplementing those rations. Essentially, they were still starving, even though they had two moose, which are, are large animals for, you know, about 10 or less people. Yeah. Um, so they continue on their way. They're approaching the carrying place, the great carrying place where there's about 12 miles of having to carry the, the boats. And they stop for the night, but they're so weak. They can't even pull the boats up on shore. So they just kind of leave them on the bank. They do get the meat up onto the land and they decide that they're going to smoke what's left of the moose so that it will last as long as possible. And Getchell and Steele and one other of the company decide that they're going to trek the 12 miles over the carrying place, get to this little cache of food that they had left and come back and, and resupply the men. And this would be, you know, again, things that had sugars and carbohydrates and like other things that would help them actually uh, get some of their energy back. Mm -hmm. So they leave, but there's no, nothing from them for five days. And after five days, the youngest man in the group named John Henry and the hardiest man in the group, Sergeant Boyd, they decide that they're going to go and, and see what's happening. And they don't make it very far, just a couple of miles to the really awful bog that they had encountered on the way there. And they just can't go any further. Like they know how hard it was to get through the bog. They just collapse. They sit there for like an hour or something, just trying to figure out what to do. And they decide to just go back to their group and they do. And the group as a whole decides that they'll rest up through the night and all set out together the next morning for better or for worse. And so that's what they do much to their delight. Once they get to the bog area, they see men from the advanced part of the army. They're cutting down trees and laying them across the bog and prepping the way. And they're just 
overjoyed and they get food. It's their first non-moose food for like 10 days and they're delighted. But this advanced group of men, mostly made up of of riflemen who were widening the path and getting rid of obstacles, they are a little bit wary of what awaits them on the journey because they're looking at these, you know, basically starved yeah. Uh, men who have gone <laughs> before them. So they're kind of starting to wonder uh, what might await them. So, yeah. So did they find, did Getchell and company get back? So, like- yeah, that's a great question. So what happened is they did and they needed to help get some of the bateaux over some of the carrying places. And so they were trying to do that even in their weakened state and Steele actually sprained his shoulder. And so he sent two men with provisions to go back and find his group of scouts and they just disappeared. Like, we don't know what happened to them. They might've deserted. They might've gotten lost. They might've had an accident. The two Um, men anyway, the two men. Yeah. So they just, we don't know what happened to them. And additionally, on their way there, the scouting party had left two men with a little cachet of stores near these three ponds. And those two men in the meantime had also absconded and, and taken the provisions with them. So mm. you, there were bad things happen all the time, but, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, unscrupulous people or, and again, maybe there was an accident or maybe someone got lost or, you, you know, you never know, but they just, we could always do a little extra genealogy and see if we could find them later. But the stories yeah. are, they were just never seen, huh. <laughs> never seen again. So yeah. So the, the men from the scouting party get replenished and their job still isn't over. Like they have to fall in line with the regular army and help guide them along the way since they've already been doing that. And the regular army itself had been making pretty good time up to this point. You know, they had been following along a few days behind Basically, Arnold had sent the scouting party. He had sent a little surveying party of just a couple of men um, to kind of accurately draw the route. And then he had sent a couple of divisions of riflemen ahead to widen the path, get rid of obstacles, lay down logs where they would have to carry the boats um, and that sort of thing. And then divisions of the regular army and the infantry were following behind um, with a man named Roger Enos carrying up the rear division. And they had made it pretty easy to the carrying place. They had gone um, from Fort Western up to Fort Halifax, where they camped for a little while. That was an old war outpost, and it was actually inhabited by a man named Ephraim Ballard, who uh, was there by himself at the time, but would two years later be joined by his wife, Martha, of uh, Martha Ballard Midwife's Tale fame who you know delivered a thousand babies in her time as a midwife with only maybe like five infant deaths so uh so they stayed with him they encountered some pretty enthusiastic villagers when they reached Skowhegan and Norwich the people were said to just be full of liberty and so excited to see the army coming through and it's probably true I mean these are very rural areas and when I say villages I mean a handful of families, you know, like five to 10 families of people kind of living in these very remote areas. And if it hadn't been for Arnold's expedition, they might not have ever encountered the war in any kind of personal way, but they were, and they were happy to help. They supplied the army with provisions for a price. Um, You know, they were, Hmm. they were savvy Yankees and they were gonna, you know, make a little, turn a little profit and that's okay. 
And they were very friendly, very accommodating. Um, and two of the men from Skowhegan, uh, two boys, uh, young men and their father, Joseph Weston, even decided that they would kind of hire themselves out to the army for like a week or two and follow along and help them out because they were kind of between planting season and woodcutting season. So it was a good opportunity for them to make some money. But unfortunately, once you pass Skowhegan and Norwich Walk, there's a lot of fording rivers. There's a lot of carrying boats. There's a lot of uh, dampness. And you're basically at this point, end of September, beginning of October, and it's cold. And the father, Joseph Weston, becomes very sick. And the three turn around and they go back to Skowhegan where he dies a couple weeks later and basically leaves his wife and nine children in the wilderness alone. So, and I mean, obviously some of the boys are old enough that they went with him, but, um, you know, still a pretty scary prospect when you're not really in a town or have any kind of community, um, right. like support system. So they, uh, they get past Skowhegan, they get past Norwich walk that takes them a very long time. There's a set of rapids there that they just can't cross and they're using oxen and it takes them seven days to kind of get around, around this area. And that's also really the last little settlement that they will see. And as they leave that, their their next encounter is Karatunk Falls. And while they're actually very easy for the army to cross over, they're just these really powerful foreboding falls. And it's just this extra signal of like, you are now in the wild of Maine. Like you're mm. in the wilderness. And yeah, there's uh, basically nobody there even now. Right. right? Yeah. The, this I mean, is back in the what's the those postal code areas that there's like um yeah like they're calling or, them plantations I mean, or territories yes, or is, yes. yeah yes yeah it's it's very remote township like r73 you know yes. like yeah so it's it's very remote today even more so back then and you know of course you can't just get in your car and turn around if it gets a little too sketchy for you right. and now <laughs> um, we know eating a moose is useless useless it yeah. won't save your starvation. <laughs> I mean, maybe if you have like some cake or like, you know, something fatty to go with it, but a moose alone. Moose alone um, won't do yeah, it. So it I was lied to by um, the Gary Paulson uh, adventure books, right? Brian's Winter, the oh. sequel to Hatchet, where he, uh, it's like a what if, if he just spent the winter in the Canada <laughs> North Woods. And a big thing is he kills a moose and he lives off of it for a long time. But maybe, I mean, it's been a long time since I read it. I think you could, like, I think if they hadn't already been so depleted. Okay. And your body had the fat stores and had, like, the sugar stores to, like, properly process the moose. But they were, you know, probably burning, you know, a thousand or more calories a day. Um, and I, I would say they were probably burning closer to 3,000 calories a day at least. And... Sure. You, you just, you can't do that on, on protein alone. And they might not have known that like, you know, the meat off the moose wasn't enough that they should have like rendered the fat in some way and tried to save that to eat, you know, mm. along with the meat. And of course you're trying to do all of this while you're moving through the wilderness. So the, the moose meat alone is not enough, but there's other things they maybe could have done to supplement that. And no, that's fair. But, I but just, that's all 2023 sure, know-how, you know? It is. And I was just thinking like, no, you know, I'm, I was, a, I was a boy scout and I, 
but I, I was like, I'm no expert on this expedition, but I've read Gary Paulson and I, yeah. I have a feeling there's going to be some people out there who would have had a similar reaction. Like, wait a minute. I read Gary Paulson and that kid eats a moose. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think under normal circumstances, a moose would probably say, <laughs> you know, um, very like well. the, ang- the angry Gary Paulson fan mail. No, I don't want to, <laughs> no angry fan mail. Moose are, moose are filling. They're delightful. Mm. <laughs> Just maybe not when you're burning 3,000 calories. Yeah, apparently not. That's the end of part one. What happens next? Does anyone make it to Quebec? Does your family really believe it takes you this long to run errands while you're secretly just listening to our show? You'll only find out if you listen to part two on Mainly History.